Welcome to Waterbrook Church, located in Victoria, Minnesota. Our new series in Luke called Glorious Disruption, being taught by our senior pastor, Kevin Dibley, is about when Jesus shows up and turns everyone's world upside down. We believe this study of God's word is about to turn many people's lives completely around. It may be even upside down because that's what happens in the Gospel of Luke. Jesus comes to people who are absolutely stunned and amazed by him, and they are profoundly and gloriously changed forever. Let's begin by praying that this happens here at Waterbrook and beyond for our joy and amazement in Jesus. Let's worship together. This morning, um, just the passage that was read, you can already tell where this is going. Um, so uh, even, as, even as we're going this morning, would you just pray? Just pray for me. Pray for yourselves. Pray for the people around you. Pray for people watching online. Um, be thinking about people that you know that don't know Jesus yet. Family members, friends. Maybe it's your kids that don't know Jesus yet. Your coworkers. And maybe, maybe for yourself, maybe you profess to know Jesus, but maybe you are actually not a Christian. Just think about that. Don't fool yourself. Um, why don't I pray? Let's just seek the Lord this morning, Father. I do feel a heaviness this morning. And so, just like we've been singing and declaring this morning, we need you. I need you, Lord. And so, I confess that I too quickly depend on myself and on my gifts, my abilities, my experience. And it's all rubbish. And so, Lord, I can't go anywhere else except to fall in your mercy. And so, Lord, I confess with the prophet, it is not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. So, Father, would you be so kind as to pour out your spirit in fresh measure this morning? Fill our hearts. Surround us with your presence, with your love. Show us who you are, Lord, and remind us who we are in light of the gospel. And I pray that this morning, if any of us, Lord, are wandering away from you, if any of us are lost, that you would call us home. Today would be the day that we come home and find rescue and the only one who can save us, Jesus Christ. So we need your help this morning. We ask it all in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. So we're going to be in Luke 13, which is a passage that was read this morning. If you aren't in your Bible, turn there. Go ahead and do that. I'm not yet, so now I am. Um, as Christians, how should we respond to atrocities and tragedies that we witness in the world and that we experience in our lives? How should we respond to that as Christians? Uh, over the last 20 plus years, we have witnessed atrocities. We have seen tragedies 
in our world, right? I mean, next month is September. So 21 years later, right, we remember the atrocity of 9-11, where terrorists attacked the two towers in New York City, killing 2,753 people. Like, this is not just a, a statistic. We're talking about souls. People who had families. People who were loved and who loved others. Or consider the tragedy of, that happened in January 2010, where a 7.0 magnitude earthquake struck Haiti. You remember that? Killing 220,000 people. Real people. Just like you and me. It was sudden. Sudden. Or consider this tragic story, which is actually closer to home. Last Saturday, at 4.20 in the morning, two teenage boys crashed into a payloader just over there in Waconia. One of the teenage boys suffered injuries, but he lived. The other teen died in the crash. 16 years old. 16. That could be my, ch- my child. It could be yours. It could be you. How should we respond to this? Tragedy. What does Jesus have to say about this? Well, in Luke 13, Jesus teaches us that if we don't repent, if we don't turn away from our sin and turn to God as our only hope, we will all likewise perish. You hear that? Now, That's not the only way that Jesus or the Bible talks about how we should respond to tragedy and atrocities that happen. The Bible has a lot to say about that we should naturally and properly say, this is sad. We should weep over this. We should grieve, right, with those who are grieving. We should say, this is not how it should be, right? Living in a fallen, cursed world. That's the proper response. And Jesus isn't unsympathetic in teaching something like this, because what he's essentially doing is he's giving us a loving warning, right? The same way that we would tell a little child who's about to touch a hot stove, don't touch that, Junior, or else you'll get burned. That's not cruel, that's loving, right? It's a loving warning, and that's exactly what Jesus is doing here. Jesus, the Lord, does not take pleasure in the death of a wicked, right? Ezekiel 18.32, he is a sympathetic high priest who sympathizes with all of our weaknesses. So in teaching us this, Jesus isn't, he's not indifferent to our pain. He's not indifferent to the tragedies that we experience and the tragedies that we face. But what, what he is doing is that he is saying every atrocious and tragic event should force us to consider this one question. And that is this, have you truly turned away from your sin and turned to God as the only one who can save you? Have you done that? Is that true about you? That's what every atrocity and every tragedy should teach us. And that's what Jesus is doing here. 
repentance is the, really the center, central storyline of the entire Bible. If you want to understand the whole Bible, it's all about turning back to God, right? Adam and Eve and us, we turn away from God in our sin, and God is the same. He's saying, come back. Come back. Return to me. Come back. You know, over and over and over again, we see in the history of Israel and us, the church, we wander away from God. And yet God, for some reason, he just still wants us. And he keeps pursuing us. And he goes after us. Right? That's the storyline of the Bible. Come back. And it's a central theme in Luke's gospel, right? The the word repentance or repent, whether it's a verb or the noun, it shows up 14 times in this whole book. 14 times. So it's it's a big theme in Luke's gospel, right? And you can also even say that it serves as bookends for Luke's gospel because it shows up in chapter 3, right? When John the Baptist preaches what? A baptism for the repentance of sins. And it shows up at the end in chapter 24 when Jesus assigns us as the church, the Great Commission, to preach the good news of repentance for the forgiveness of sins that is not just available to Israel, but available to all the nations, right? And that's where the story is headed. And then we see it right here in the middle. Right in the middle of Luke's gospel, we see repentance. So you can almost see kind of like this mountain, the beginning of chapter 3, right here, and then we're at the top of the mountain right now, Luke 13. And now, and then when we go to chapter 24, he ends it that way. So it's almost like a chiasm, maybe. I don't know. I didn't, I didn't do any research on that. But it could be, right? Nonetheless, Jesus wants to really hit this home for us. It is a vital theme. Jesus is saying in this passage that you and I, we have an expiration date. We're all going to die. It's inevitable. And after that, you have a court date to follow. All of us have to appear before God the judge. And so are you ready? Are you ready for that? This isn't just a message for unbelievers. This is a message for all believers. This is a message for everyone because this is a reality check. Like, which direction are you facing right now? Are you facing away from God or are you facing God, facing toward God? It's like my my father-in-law would always say, he would always say, it's not about the perfection of your life, it's about the direction of your life. Which way are you facing? Like, it's not, it, it's not about the prayer that you prayed, and it's not about the good works that you do. Where do you stand with Jesus today? So that's why this is important for everybody. Jesus is saying, are you ready? So history contains tons of disasters. I don't have to tell you that. We, we see them. We, they're all around us. But I want to ask you this question. What is the worst disaster of all? What is the worst disaster of all? Is it the Holocaust? Is it Katrina? Is it 9-11? Don't get me wrong. Those are horrible, horrible tragedies. Horrible. But I want to tell you this, that the worst tragedy of all is if you die in your sins. 
without trusting in Jesus. That's the worst tragedy of all. And Jesus is lovingly warning us and calling us back to trust in him. So here's what I want to do this morning. Because our life is short and because God's judgment is near, repent. And Jesus gives us this warning and this promise, and this is my outline for this morning. Number one, if you don't repent, you'll perish. Point number two, I like to state things in the positive. If you do repent, you'll be saved. That's where I want to go this morning. So let me go through those one at a time. First, if you don't repent, you'll perish. Look at verses 1 through 3, chapter 13, 1 through 3. There were some present at that very time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So before we dive in, I just want to do a little recap this section concludes Jesus' teaching on God's coming judgment, which started in chapter 12, verse 1. I was talking with Andy a little bit, and we were joking around about how, you know, Pastor Kevin went on sabbatical at just the right time, because we've been preaching about judgment for the last couple of weeks. <laughs> it's like, Pastor Kevin's like, oh, I'm going to my sabbatical. Here you go. <laughs> Bring hell and fire and brimstone while I'm gone. All kidding aside. So this is, the, this is the unit that kind of closes uh, this tone of God's judgment, that God's judgment is coming. And recall also that Jesus, we know that Jesus has set his face toward Jerusalem. He is on his way to Jerusalem for what purpose? 19 verse 10, to seek and to save lost sinners. That's why he's come. That's why he's going. He's journeying to Jerusalem. And so along the way, He's teaching his disciples, this big crowd, and us that we need to t discern the time. And that's exactly where Pastor John left off last time. He says in, uh, in chapter 12, verse 54 to 56, we can discern the weather, but we don't know what time it is. We can't discern the time. We have trouble with that. And so Jesus is teaching that God's judgment is coming, so the time is now to repent. So that's where our story begins. So when you look at our text, Jesus is teaching, and all of a sudden, some people arrive on the scene at present to tell them about a certain news report that was really bugging them, right? And here's the news report. Some Galileans who journeyed, they journeyed to Jerusalem, to the temple. We know that they went to Jerusalem because that's where the temple is, and that's where Pontius Pilate is. They journeyed to Jerusalem for what purpose? To offer sacrifices. And then suddenly... All of a sudden, as they're offering sacrifices, Pontius Pilate slaughters them. And there's like a hint of irony that we're supposed to feel. In, just in that phrase, Pilate mingled their blood with their sacrifices. It's like the blood that was going to shed wasn't the sacrifices. It was going to be them. They were going to become the sacrifices. Just feel the shrieking irony there. Jesus wants us to feel that. Luke wants us to feel that. So this is the second time that Pilate shows up in Luke's gospel. He shows up for the first time in Luke, Luke 3 when John the Baptist comes and preaches a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. This is the second time that he shows up. 
And he's going to show up again in Luke 23. It's almost as if Luke is trying to set it up for us. He's a good storyteller, and he's trying to say, this isn't the last time you're going to see this guy. He's going to show up again, and it's going to be ugly. So, to be continued on that. We don't know why this particular event happened. What we do know is that Pontius Pilate was the governor, Roman governor of Judea. We know that he was cruel from church history. Josephus and others tell us that uh, the Jews were a nuisance to him, so he hated them. For example, he slaughtered 3,000 protesters in Jerusalem during Passover. 3,000. He hated the Jews, and he also hated the Samaritans who were half-Jew. Right? He massacred Samaritans who came to view sacred vessels buried by Moses. So this is the kind of guy that we're dealing with here. This is an a evil tyrant. So surely Pilate is to blame for the murder of these Galileans. But this is what's surprising about, about this here, is that the people who reported this to Jesus, they don't focus on Pilate, right? They, you, would, you would imagine they would be outraged by Pilate, but their focus isn't on Pilate. Their focus is on the Galileans who were murdered. That's interesting. Why are they focused on the Galileans? And this is what you can imagine. This is what Jesus was seeing in their hearts. Right, Because Jesus knows all things. He knows our thoughts from, from afar. He knows exactly the kind of question that is surging in their hearts. So he catches on to it. And in a sense, they were probably wondering this. Did this atrocity happen to the Galileans because of their sin? Or in other words, they thought, man, these Galileans, this happened to them because they were guilty. They were criminals. And so... They got what was coming to them. They deserved to die because of this. That's the kind of thinking that they had. You see, uh, the Jews, Jesus' audience at this time, they believed that bad things happen to bad people. And good things should happen to good people. Right? It's very similar to how we think in, here in the West. This was actually typical because in the Old Covenant, right, when God made a covenant with his people Israel, the covenant was based on obedience or disobedience, right? Deuteronomy 27 to 28 tells us that if you obey, you will be blessed. But if you are disobedient, then you will be cursed, right? And so that was their thinking. That was their, their perspective. Um, you could see it when you recall the story of Job. How did Job's friends comfort and give advice to Job, right? One of the things they said is, man, you are suffering in this way. You lost your livestock, your family, all your possessions. This is happening to you because there's sin in your life. Those are not good friends. Those are not good friends. See, they, they had this simplistic theology that bad things happen to you because there's some sort of sin in your life. Or good things happen to you because, man, you're a really good person. That was the kind of thinking that they had. But Jesus um, shatters these categories. We tend to have two categories for people. I mean, just think about this. There are good guys and there are bad guys, right? I mean, that, that's why we love film. That's why we love stories. That's how, our, that's how our unsafe coworkers think. But that's how a lot of so-called Christians think. There are good guys and there are bad guys. Jesus doesn't go there. He shatters those two categories and he says, no, there's really only, only one category. Everybody's bad because everyone's a sinner. 
There's only one who is good, and that is God, right? There's only one man who is good, and that's Jesus. So he totally refutes this good guy, bad guy mentality. He totally opposes the simplistic theology of Job's friends saying, man, this is happening into your life because you're a sinner. You're, there's sin in your life. He totally refutes that. He's like, no, no, don't even go there. Don't even go there. See, the Jews, they thought that they were okay with God because they were children of Abraham. It would be like us saying, man, I'm okay with God. I grew up in the church. I go to Waterbrook Church, man. You know, I'm evangelical. I know the gospel. I pray. I read the Bible. I give. I'm a good person. I was born and raised in a Christian home. And Jesus is saying, no, just because those things might be true of you, that's not your disaster-free card. No. Everyone is a sinner. That's the plain truth. Everyone is a sinner, and because of that, everyone deserves to die. Just let that land on you. And that's why Jesus makes the point in verse 3, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Don't think that you're off the hook. Don't think you're off the hook. And so to cement this point, he, Jesus, gives us a, another story. It's really interesting how these, uh, these people that came to Jesus, they were kind of like news reporters, and now Jesus becomes a news reporter. And he's like, well, what about this one? Look at verse 4 and 5. Jesus says, Or what about those 18 souls on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them? Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Do you think Jesus is trying to tell us something? I mean, he's, he's repetitious on purpose. He's trying to be emphatic here. Do you get what he's saying? This tragic story, I want you to know, it also happens in Jerusalem. That's important. So the first story, the first atrocity happened in Jerusalem. This story that Jesus is mentioning happened in Jerusalem. That's going to be important for where we're going later on. So the Tower of Siloam is located in southeast Jerusalem near the, near the Pool of Siloam. That's like the miracle place where people would go to be healed of their diseases and infirmities. If you remember John 9, the man born blind that Jesus healed, Jesus told him, go to the Pool of Siloam and wash there, and you'll, be, you'll have your sight back. That's, this is, is kind of where we're, where we're at. What Jesus is doing here is Jesus shifts the focus from Galileans, those worst sinners, to all Jerusalem, all the inhabitants living in Jerusalem. Why does he do this? Why is this important? Because Jesus is trying to, to convey to us that sin isn't just a Galilean problem. It's a Jerusalem problem. Or, in other words, where do you think most of the offenders and criminals are, most people? Most people would say, oh, Minneapolis, St. Paul. Not, not Victoria. You know, this is like suburban land where there's no crime. You know, there's no break-ins. And Jesus is trying to say, no. Victoria is no different than Minneapolis-St. Paul. Victoria is no different than the worst uh, city that has the worst crime. Jesus is saying, no, sin is a global problem. It's not just about who you are, where you're from, what ethnicity you are. These guys thought, oh, we're Galilean, we're Jewish, so we must be in the clear. No, 
So he asked this rhetorical question. Do you think this happened to these 18 souls because they were more indebted to God? They were worse offenders than all of those living in Jerusalem? Jesus makes the same point. No. He's saying we are no different than these 18 souls living in Jerusalem. We are all sinners. Again, the same point. If you don't repent, you'll all perish. He says it in verse 3. He says it again in verse 5 because he wants to hit it home with us. So what do these disasters signify? These disasters signify that a greater disaster is coming. And it's the disaster of God's judgment. God's judgment is coming. That's what every atrocity and every tragedy should point to. That it comes suddenly, it comes imminently, so you need to be ready. So repent. But if I'm honest, if you're honest... We, we struggle with repentance because it goes against everything inside of us. Um, I don't know if you, re, you remember the song My Way uh, performed by Frank Sinatra. Uh, it's really catchy. I like that song. And uh, the whole song is basically about how uh, this guy's at the end of his life and uh, you know, he's, like, he's lived his life to the full and uh, you know, he's struggled here and there. He's had maybe a, few, a couple of regrets, but he did it his way. It's like, I did it my way. Right? I did it my way. That's anti-repentance. And um, we may not sing, I did it my way, you know. But deep down in our hearts, we say that. We say, I I can do it. I got this. I can do life on my own. I don't need God. That's anti-repentance. Repentance is, is like a total life orientation of change. It's changing your, it really means a change of mind or a change of heart. It is me turning away from my sin and doing away needy to turn all the way to Jesus. Forgetting what, what lies behind. Looking forward to Jesus. That's what repentance is. It's turning away and turning to Jesus, turning away from sin, from Satan, turning away from the world, the world's allurements, and turning to Jesus as the only one who can save. We have a hard problem with that. I have a hard problem with that. Because we love our sin. It's easier to rely upon ourselves. It's easier to trust in ourselves. It's kind of our default because of our sin. We're allergic to help. We're allergic to asking for help. It's not what we want to do. Um, This isn't just a problem for irreligious people. So don't think that you're off the hook. This is a problem for religious people too. It's a problem for irreligious and religious people. So Jesus talks to both people. Um, let Let me tackle the irreligious person. So if you're an irreligious person, if you are not a believer, um, maybe this, here are some ways in which you've thought. One of the reasons why people give an excuse for not repenting is because they say something like, I have a lot of time. I have a lot of time in my life. Usually it's a young person, but not only just a young person, it's also older people who've said this. I've heard them say, I have a lot of time in my life. I have a lot of time to... Uh, you know, I want to experience life a little bit. I want to live a little bit. 
I want to have some fun before I actually become a Christian. And in response to that, I want to say, no, you don't. You don't have a lot of time. You don't know when your last breath will be, right? You don't know when your last breath will be. And so because you don't know that, today is the day of repentance. Repent. Here's another excuse that I've heard from irreligious people. They say something like, I'm a good person. I'm a good person. I don't hurt anybody. I pay my taxes, right? I don't cheat. I don't lie. I give. I'm a part of a certain, uh, uh, you know, cause in society. I do good. And in response, Jesus is saying, no, there's no one good, not even one. And even for somebody who says, I'm a good person, at some point, you will fail your own standards. You'll fail to keep them. And then you'll always wonder, man, is my best ever going to be good enough? And on goes the treadmill. So that is a response to that, a person who says that. How about this one? Have you heard somebody say, or maybe you said, my life is really good right now. You know, I'm really healthy. Uh, People around me are healthy. My family's good. I have a really good job. I have a nice car. Uh, I have my retirement set up. Um, I'm not really experiencing anything difficult right now in my life, right? But the question I have for a person that says that is what's going to happen when your life goes, goes bad? What's going to happen when disaster strikes? What's going to happen if you get diagnosed with a certain illness that you can't beat? What's going to happen if you stare death in the face? What are you going to do? Here's another one. Uh, I've heard this one. Somebody says, I just love my sin. I just love my sin. I love pursuing a life of self-discovery. I love experimentation. This is a person who believes that, who basically just says, I I just want to do me right now. You know, I want to be the best version of myself. My response to that is that if you go down that road, it will only lead to more emptiness and more destruction and more heartache. Because sin always promises, but it never delivers. It always brings death. So repent. What about this one? Somebody who says, I don't need God. I got this. I got this. And the same, same, it's related to the person who says, I'm a good person, but what happens when your best is not good enough? What happens when all the resources that you're trusting in, your personality, fail you? What happens when something bad happens in your life and you lose everything and it all goes to the trash? What happens then? Are you going to be able to say, I got this still? Are you going to be able to pick yourself up again? So just in case uh, you think that you're off the hook, repentance is a problem for religious people, not just irreligious people, for church people, for me. And here's why, because we confuse repentance with penance. Penance isn't just the Roman Catholic doctrine. It's like, a, it's like a human doctrine. From the very beginning of the 
History of the World, chapter three of Genesis. Jack Miller, uh, I'm really helped by this. He wrote a book, a little book called Repentance. I strongly suggest that you read it. It's really good. Um, he says that penance, penance is our human effort to save ourselves. And here are some of the ways uh, in which we see penance in our own lives as religious people. So as I, re- as I say these questions, reflect on them, and ask yourself if this is you. When you fail, do you try to pay for your flaws by being a good person? What about this one? Do you uh, often say to yourself, man, just give me another day. Give me another day to try harder, to be better, to be a better person. Give me another religious duty, another program, and then I'll be okay. My life will be right side up again. What about this? Do you get angry at God when your life is hard because you think that he owes you for being a good person? Do you get angry at God when life is hard because you think that he owes you a good life for being a good person? How about this one? Do you feel more loved by God when you obey? And what about the flip side of that? Do you feel less loved by God when you disobey? How about this one? Do you often feel more guilt, more shame, more regret in your life than you do joy, peace, or love? Do you often feel more guilt, more shame, more regret than you do joy, peace, and love? And here's the last one. Jack Miller says that penance is, uh, is uh, when we turn to other high priests instead of Jesus as our high priest. This is really good. So what high priest do you turn to instead of Jesus? It could be a pastor. It could be a, a podcast. It could be a, a counselor that you see, a psychiatrist you see. It could be a friend you confide in. Now, don't get me wrong. It's not bad to seek out a pastor, seek out a podcast, a counselor, a friend. It's when you make those people your high priest instead of Jesus. Do you turn to those things instead of Jesus as your high priest? That's penance. That's not repentance. So all that to say is that we cannot save ourselves. Our self-salvation project is not going to work. That's why we need Jesus. So run to him. So here's the second point. If you do run to Jesus, you'll be saved. If you do run to him, you'll be saved. Look at verses 6 through 9. And Jesus told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, Look, for three years now I have been seeking fruit on this tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? Verse 8, and he said to him, Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. So it's, it's obvious that Jesus is calling all of us to repent. We, we, I hope you get that now. But he wants to bolster that point even more by telling us the story. So that here's the situation. There is a man who owned a vineyard And in this vineyard, he planted this beautiful fig tree, or so he thought. 
And here's the search. He was searching for the last three years. I'm told that it's really hard to plant and manage a fig tree. He looked for three years, finding, seeking fruit on it, and here's the surprise, and he found none. That's kind of the sequence, right? Here's the situation, here's the search, and here's the surprise. It's almost like Jesus wants us to feel the surprise, the shock with this man. Here's the reaction. He says to the vine dresser, right, probably his employee, this tree has been bearing out for three years. Here's his request. Get the axe out. It's time to cut it down. It's wasting the ground anyway. Now, the story could have ended here. It could have ended here. Cut it down. But Jesus adds a plot twist to the story. All of a sudden, this vine dresser pipes up and he's like, he makes a proposal. He's like, Sir, Lord, just give it one more year. Don't cut it down yet. Give it one more year, and I'll tend to it. I'll care for it. I'll dig around it. I'll put fertilizer on it. Somehow he has this attachment to this fig tree. Have you ever had this attachment to a plant before? I know my wife has. There's, a, there's this plant in our bedroom that it was beautiful like a year or so ago, and now it's dying. And she's just like, no, you know, and she's like trying to figure out how to resurrect it, right? Maybe some of you uh, can relate to that. But for some reason, this man has this emotional attachment to this tree. Look at verse 9. I just want to show you this. I don't know if this is accurate, but look at verse 9. Then if it should, be, it should bear fruit next year, well and good. So the words well and good is actually not in the text. It's not in there. If it should bear fruit next year, and then he just stops. Why do we do that in like normal conversation? We do that often. We say something and then we don't finish our sentences sometimes. Maybe he got choked up a little bit. Maybe. One commentator says that's possible. If it bears fruit next year, but if not, So there's an emotional attachment that he has for this fig tree. But he gives it a condition, right? The proposal, now the condition. Just give it one more year, and if it bears fruit, good. But if not, cut it down. So what is the meaning of this parable? What are we supposed to get from this? Well, the Lord is the owner of the vineyard. That's who the owner represents. Represents the Lord. And the fig tree and the vineyard are actually symbols for Israel. And the reason we know this is because Luke 13, 6 through 7 echoes Isaiah 5, 1 through 7. So in Isaiah 5, this is how this story would have landed on Jesus' audience. They would have recalled, whoa, this sounds like Isaiah 5. Okay? So in Isaiah 5, we're told that the Lord, Yahweh, owned a vineyard that he loved and that he cared for. Right? And that in this vineyard, there were beautiful trees and plants, and Israel was his fig tree that he planted. And when you look at the history of Israel, you see Israel flourishing, you see Israel in all of her strength, the glory days of David, the glory days of Solomon. But Israel turned away from the Lord, right? And as a result, 
Israel became a barren fig tree. And so in response, the Lord Yahweh in judgment sets out to cut it down. And that's how the story should end. Right? That's, what, that's how we read the Old Testament. We read it wondering, is it going to be cut down? It's a cliffhanger. Is that how the story, that's how the story should end? But it doesn't. Why? Because it all comes down to this vine dresser. Who is he? Who is the vine dresser? This mysterious vine dresser. The vine dresser is Jesus. So Jesus enters the story, right? Jesus is the one who enters in and pleads with the owner of the vineyard, no, don't cut it down yet. I'm going to take care of it. I'm going to fertilize it. I'm going to make sure it's healthy and strong. I'm going to give it some more time. I'm going to give you more time. And that's the reason that none of us is cut down yet. You feel that? That's the reason that none of us is cut down. Because Jesus is here. Jesus came. That's why he came, right? So here's how I, wanna, here's how I want to uh, paint a picture for you of what Jesus did. What Jesus did for you. Now, again, I mentioned that these two disasters took place in, in Jerusalem. Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem, and it's not an accident that these two events took place in Jerusalem. So what Luke is doing is he's foreshadowing what Jesus is going to do in Jerusalem. That these two disasters actually point to the greatest disaster in history that we've ever seen, and that is the disaster of Calvary. That Jesus experienced the worst disaster in our place so that we would never ever have to face the disaster of God's judgment at the cross. I mean, look at the wording. Look at the wording. Pontius Pilate? Galilean? Who is that? Jesus is the only innocent Galilean who willingly suffered under Pontius Pilate. Right? And he suffered on the cross as if he was the worst offender. For you. Like he did that for you. Right? He was, he didn't go to the temple to offer up sacrifice. He became the sacrifice. Right? Like his blood was shed like a lamb that was slaughtered for you. He became the sacrifice. What about the Tower of Siloam? The Tower of Siloam fell and crushed 18 souls. And that is exactly what happened to Jesus at the cross. Like the Tower of Siloam fell on those innocent people, on those 18 people, the wrath of God crushed the Son of God so that you would never, ever have to face God's judgment. Like, it's like Jesus was like, pushed us out of the way and he's just like, he just welcomed it. He welcomed the crushing of God, God's wrath. And that's why now is a season of mercy. Now is a season of mercy. When we should have been cut down, Jesus is like, nope, you have time. 
you have time to respond, to repent? Do you see the kindness and and mercy of God here? God is so merciful, right? But time is running out. If you don't bear fruit, you will be cut down. That's also the same, two sides of the same coin. And this is how this parable ends. Notice how this parable ends with a cliffhanger. I think Luke does that on purpose. Luke's Jesus does that on purpose. It's unfinished on purpose. Um, Many commentators, scholars note this, like Hedrick, Charles Hedrick. This is an unfinished parable on purpose. Why? Because this unfinished story continues with you. You get that? This unfinished story continues with you. Where are you at in your relationship with the Lord today? Have you repented of your sin? Are you still living in your sin? Is there some area of your life where you have not bowed down to King Jesus? That's how this parable should read to us. I want to say to you, like, if you're still on the fence, get off the fence. Get off the fence and run to Jesus for rescue. Time to surrender. I I love to ask these questions to unbelievers that I talk to about the gospel. I'll ask it to you. If you died tonight, do you know for certain that you would spend eternity with God? Or, if you stood before God on Judgment Day and he asked you, why should I let you into my heaven, what would you say? If you answer something like, oh, because I'm a good person, because I was born and raised in a Christian home, or because I read my Bible, I pray, I do all these things. Unless you repent. Unless you repent. You'll all likewise pray perish. I want to close with just giving you an encouragement. Uh, I think Jesus is warning us, but he's also, he's also, uh, he warns us about this because he loves us, and he warns us about this because he wants us. Like, he wants us to repent. He wants us to come back to him. And I just want to, like, persuade you that if you're not a Christian this morning, I want to persuade you to come to Jesus. For the person who says, my, my sin is too great, there's no way that God could forgive me. There is no sin that, too great that God cannot forgive. That's what he's good at. He's good at saving sinners. So come. For the person who says, I'm unworthy, God will never take me. Oh man, God is not ashamed of you. He is not ashamed of you. So come. For the person who still has doubts and fears, you don't have to have it all figured out, so just come. Come with all of your fears. Come with all of your doubts and believe. For the person who says, my faith isn't strong enough, come anyway with all of your unbelief. Come with all of your unbelief. For the person who says, I've wandered for so long, Man, God just won't take me back. That's not true. In fact, 
God's pursuit of you goes far wider than all of your wandering. Like if you're running away from him, he's running after you right now. And he wants you and he wants you to come home. So come. For the person who says, God is indifferent to my pain. Maybe some of you, this is the hard part for you because you suffer and you know what suffering is like. Maybe you're going through something really hard. Maybe this is the reason why your relationship with God might be shaky. And I just want to say to you, like, God sees you. God knows you. He weeps with you. He grieves with you, with your pain. He experienced the full range of human suffering at the cross, so he knows exactly how you feel. He loves you in the midst of your pain. So because Jesus is that great of a Savior, come. Come to him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We ask that you would just, that your spirit would just blow on this word and let it hit the recesses of our hearts in only the way that you can work and move. And I pray that you would, that we would delight in coming home and in finding rescue and the only one who can save, Jesus. In your name I pray, amen. Thank you for joining us today. We hope you were able to seek, savor, and share the all-surpassing worth of Jesus Christ. If you'd like to find out more about our church, submit a prayer request, watch previous sermons, go to www.waterbrook.church. Have a blessed week.